Hey everybody, welcome to the Velvet Ashes Legacy Podcast. We have a really special podcast today. Um, We're so excited to bring you Jen and her story. Sarah, we just finished recording and I don't even know what to say. It was, it was amazing. It was so sweet for me to uh, be able to listen in and hear Jen's story and I can't wait for everyone to hear this. I think even if you have not experienced something like what Jen has experienced, which I have not, and yet I found myself at so many points listening to her story saying, oh man, this ministers to something Mm -hmm. in me or something in my story. And one of the things that really stuck out to me that you'll get to hear that, that kind of comes up multiple times in Jen's story is when we say yes to something, when we take a step of courage, the ripple effects that that has, when our suffering or our our surrender to the Lord then impacts other people, our families that we leave behind when we go overseas, or even the people that are around us, our teammates or our families when we're on the field. And I don't know that we talk about that enough as cross-cultural workers. And so I'm so, so grateful to Jen for bringing that up in the ways that Uh, the Lord has ministered to her in the midst of that part of her story. I so agree. And honestly, the first time that I heard Jen's story, I knew that it was something that we needed to share and that I hoped that we could bring to the Legacy Podcast because, because so many women that we minister to do wrestle with fear and they wrestle with these elements of, of being in the wilderness and of wondering, God, am I allowed to wonder and doubt you? And, and she so beautifully has embodied that and has lived that story. And, and it's, and it's an amazing story. And I love that she agreed to share that with us. And, and I, and the ministry that she serves with now is, is a ministry that's near and dear to my heart. Yes. Yeah. So she uh, works with Barnabas International and we want to highlight Barnabas for a couple of different reasons. Um, Barnabas is sponsoring this podcast, which is really exciting. We're so grateful to them. They offer member care and member care training for global workers and those that want to walk alongside of global workers. Barnabas um, hopefully is not new to you. They're not new to us. We have loved them and shared about them. Um, We have highlighted the men's retreat that they do and other resources that they offer. And so um, we're so excited for this partnership. But also, Denise, now you have uh, another connection to Barnabas, which is really fun. Yeah. So recently, my husband became the executive director of Barnabas. And so I've gotten to to love many more aspects of Barnabas as I've gotten to see how they just love and serve the global worker community in many ways. And so I'm excited as I get to know about more of those resources to bring them to share with this community. And one of those ways is this story with Jen, because she works with Mm -hmm. Barnabas International. And this story actually highlights the need for care on the field. So as you listen to this, Barnabas is one of the ways that you can be connected to care, but there's lots of other organizations where you can be connected to care. And we're going to join, and we're going to highlight some of those in the show notes um, for this episode. But we hope that as you listen to this, you are encouraged, you are emboldened to seek that care should you need it. And you are just encouraged to know that you are not alone. And I just hope that you find hope in listening to Jen's story. 
Here's the Velvet Ashes Legacy Podcast. Jen, it's so good to be here with you today. Thank you so yeah. much for joining us. And thank you so much for, for sharing your story with us today. I feel really honored to sit here with you, even though, honestly, we haven't known each other for very long, but on, you're one of my favorite people. I have so oh, much fun with you. That's the same for me and you. Mm. Thank you. And this community that we're recording this for is also a community that's really close to my heart. And because of that, I, when I heard your story the day that for the first time in, because of, I don't know, our connection and we get to walk together in different circles, I've gotten to hear parts of your story through different seasons and times. But the first time I heard your story, we were sitting on a picnic table having ice cream. Do you remember that? I do. I remember it so well. And I remember thinking... I hope someday I get to share this with the women in the Velvet Ashes community because oh. it touched me so much and and it gave courage to me and I feel like it would give courage to the women who serve in our community all over the world. And that's what this Velvet Ashes Legacy podcast is. We draw courage from the stories of the lives of those who have gone before us. And, and so many of the women in our community um, – serve in hard places and they face the fears that they hoped they would never have to face. And, and so honestly, I want to get to your whole story, but I want to go to the part of your story that I carried with me that day. And I've thought yeah. about a lot and it was a phone call that you made to your mom. Mm -hmm. And many of us, when we go through training, I don't know mm -hmm. if you did this, but when we went through training, they do that security training and they tell you, okay, the worst case scenarios, the what ifs, the what if this happens, I, we just want you to know what our protocol is as an organization, as a sending org. And they, they, they scare you to death. They, they tell mm -hmm. you, you know, the things. And then sometimes you have to go talk to your family and say, I just need you to know that if this happens, but, but don't worry, mom, this probably is never going to happen, but you actually had to make a phone call to your mom. And I wonder if maybe you could just take us to that day when you had to make a phone call to your mom. Yeah. It's interesting. You say that those, those things that you learn and they're so theoretical. And, um, I think you're right. You kind of, you spend so much time going, Oh, this is never going to happen. And I'll, you know, of course I have to tell you. And we, we walk through those conversations and, and the, we lean into this, statistical reality, which is that it'll probably never happen. It's likely to never happen. But that day, there was a day where I had been, I had spent a week um, being interrogated and questioned by authorities in the place where I was working and went to court. Um, I was taken to court. I was held with some of my coworkers. We were taken to court and spent the day uh, at the court, just our charges being heard. And from that point, we were taken to uh, a prison uh, held with the other prisoners who were being charged that day and taken to a prison. And I remember that as we pulled up, I was really exhausted from a week of interrogation and questioning and being held and being released. And 
I remember pulling up to the court, I mean the prison, excuse me, and having this unbelievable sense of peace. Uh, We were rolling up as it was sunset and the prison was, I didn't know where in the world I was. I knew what country I was in. (laughs) I didn't know what part of the country I was in, but we were out in just nowhere. And so there was just nothing but fields and foliage. And then this prison sat right in the middle of it, but we rolled up at sunset. And I remember seeing the sunset and it was one of the most beautiful sunsets I'd ever seen. And there was just this tremendous sense of peace that came upon me as I saw it. And then we walk in to the prison grounds and the door gets closed behind us and locked and reality starts to sink in. And I got, we were getting booked into jail with the, the, what we were told was that we would spend the night there. And in the booking in process, they ask you all kinds of questions about obviously your name and uh, where you come from and um, addresses and people and they take your weight and they check your height and they prepare to get you clothes that you're going to wear. And one of the last things they do is they take everything you have, uh, including your phone. And so they told us that we could uh, make one phone call. Uh, to whoever we needed to and then they were going to take our phones from us and in that phone call of course had to call my mom and tell her where I was I didn't know exactly where I was I just knew that I was in prison (laughs) but I couldn't give her much more than that and so yeah I called my mom and I said mom I'm, I'm in jail and I don't know when I'll get out and I'm not even really sure where I am and I remember this gravity of what my following um, and counting the cost was leading somebody I cared so deeply Mm -hmm. into. And my mom's response, I'll never forget it. Um, She was so strong and steady. And she said, Jen, never forget whatever happens that we are praying constantly that you are never alone that jesus is there with you he will remain there with you and you are so loved and um Mm. to hang up the phone (laughs) and have no idea if those are the last words you hear from mom Mm. um and also to be so comforted by her voice speaking this truth this deep, deep truth that I needed. I needed it and I needed to hear it from her and to turn over my phone and that be kind of this like surrender of, I don't know what happens next. And the reality is, is that I found out later that my mom just crumbled after that, right? That in that moment, she was so strong and so confident in uh, the truth of what she was saying. And yet the, the hanging up, caused her to just absolutely crumble. crumble and she had to deal then with the fear and I had to deal with the fear of the the reality of what we were in after that but that was a moment I had such a different awareness of the ripple effect of suffering and the ripple effect mm-hmm. of the cost and the call um, to follow Christ and it was just eight months earlier 
that you had said goodbye. You had only been on the field for eight months. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. So let's go back. What was that Mm -hmm. like for you to wrestle and decide that this is what you wanted to do? You know, the interesting thing is I didn't, um, you know, I would say my call to serve the Lord overseas was uh, unique as all of ours are, but I didn't, it wasn't something I grew up desiring. I wasn't even totally aware of, you know, God's heart for the nations or the ways that people serve him in other places until uh, into my mid twenties. And at that time I was working at a job and uh, loving it and everything was going well. And then just started to have this internal wrestling of, I feel like God is asking me to do something different and I don't know what it is. And I don't know. I just feel a little bit unsettled in, in what I'm doing, which doesn't make sense. Cause I love my job. I love my community. I love where I live. And so I went through a 40 day prayer journey where I just really asked God to reveal what is this kind of discontent or dissonance I'm feeling internally. And he just very clearly revealed asking me to, to serve him in another place. And that started a journey of really not only (laughs) pursuing that work, but understanding it. I didn't even really know what it meant. I was just at a stage in my life and my faith where I didn't even know what that really Mm -hmm. meant or was. And so, uh, I really, I, I talk a lot about, you know, I really related to kind of the, the disciples, when Jesus calls the disciples and they're just sitting there fishing and he's like, come, let's go follow me. Like drop what you're doing right now. And everything you're going to learn is going to be in the context of this <laughs> journey with me where I'm calling yeah. you away. And, and so it was such a, you know, it all kind of happened at the same time. It wasn't years of preparing and um, absorbing and craving and longing and praying at all. It all kind of was like, let's go. And so now I have to also learn what is this thing I'm doing <laughs> as I'm preparing to go right. do it. Um, so it was about a two year preparation process after I uh, found, you know, an organization that I wanted to serve with and work with. And so it was about, uh, it was 2011 that I felt that the Lord's call to, to follow him. And, and then 2013 when I actually launched, but it was kind of two years of, of just learning what is, what is God's heart for the nations and what's he asking me to do and what's my role in it. So, um, did you have a family, you know, your mom, dad, mm -hmm. you know, people around you, did they understand this call? Did they think you were crazy? You know, what was that like to all of a sudden say, (laughs) I'm out of here? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing, one of the things I I share with people a lot, when I did that 40-day prayer journey, I was very wisely encouraged that in that 40 days, that 40 days was only the Lord's. And so, I'm a real verbal processor and I tend to, when I hear something, when I think something, whatever, I want to share it with somebody and I want to get it affirmed or challenged. Um, Somebody very wisely told me, Hey, for these 40 days where you're praying, like just seek the Lord. Don't, don't seek other voices. Don't, don't go outside and say, Hey, this is what I think I'm hearing. Um, Can you speak into it? Like just give him that space and see what he'll do all on his own and how he'll confirm or challenge or reveal new things. And so the beautiful thing about that 40 days is that I was on day 16 when I felt clearly what he was asking me to do and saw clearly what he was asking me to do. So I had 24 more days um, to just pray into 
uh, the, my family and who was going to hear this and how do I share it in a way that's honoring to them and honoring to their, uh, what their emotional response might be. Now hear me say I was young and ignorant in a million ways. And I did not do that anywhere near perfectly, but I was aware, I was aware of like, okay, like, how do I, how do I not just get really excited about this and, and understand that this is a complex thing and so there was the whole spectrum of responses. Uh, my mom is extremely faithful and I, she, you know, she had the complex response of you're the Lord. You've always been the Lord. I would never keep you, uh, from doing what he asks you to do. You are his first. And yet the reality that I'm an only child and, um, you know, the, the recognition of what is it when an only child uh, goes across an ocean, right? Uh, no matter what we're doing. And so never mind the potential costs or dangers or risks in that. And so, you know, she had her own journey and process of walking through, you know, the highs and lows of fears and sadness and grief and all of that. But at the end of every day, she always came back to, you know, a lot of support and encouragement. And uh, she has her own story to tell, but a beautiful story of how my journey impacted her faith. And, and what, you know, one of the things that somebody told me in the midst of that one time that I've never forgotten, it was a coworker of mine. And um, she also, in walking through kind of leaving family and friends, she said God had revealed to her that, God's best for us is not in opposition to his best for the people who love us. And so although we're the ones that say yes, that he's still working out his best in their lives as well. And I've seen that with my mom. I saw it back then. And um, so, you know, it was, of course, it was challenging for her. And but uh, she was faithful in the process. There are others in in my family who aren't followers of Jesus. And this makes no sense to them <laughs> made no sense right to say i'm i'm flying across an ocean to go to east africa to work in this place and was very scary and and for people who don't have the hope of jesus right or the the promises of the lord um that it sounds like you know a death sentence and it's and it's dark and it's scary and so they responded in that way right and um so of course there's there's such a, a such a range of responses and that's all part of the journey as we prepare to go out right and i think that's it's god's mercy in so many ways where we're preparing to receive a lot of responses to our message right and so it's kind of the prep on the front end of you're going to get a lot of responses to that calling and right before you left, someone really special to you was diagnosed mm -hmm. with cancer. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. My mom's dad, my grandfather, who was one of my dearest friends in this life, was diagnosed uh, two days before I said goodbye to him. And what was that like wrestling with leaving at that point? Oh, my gosh. It was um, so... Uh, it was so heavy that I, I think I um, kind of disconnected from it a bit, right? Where I look back on it now all these years later. and it, it was so much to process that as I'm preparing to leave everything and have all this grief, 
to then recognize that my family is, is in such a different type of pain and I'm about to be separated from them as they walk through that. And I remember so much wrestling and I'm sure so many people can (laughs) resonate with this where you're doing that mental dance of like, is it spiritual warfare? Is it God like revealing a reason I'm supposed to actually stay? Is it like, do you push through and overcome? If it's just warfare, do you just keep going in faith and God's going to heal him and just doing all that mental dance and conversation and praying any kind of prayer that comes to mind, right? <laughs> like right, I'm praying right. for victory. I'm praying for right, healing. Right. I'm praying for confidence. I'm, like every prayer that comes to mind to pray because you just you can't make sense of what is this. And then the confusion of, I don't know what it is and I don't know where it's coming from. How do I respond? Do I stay? Do I go? You know, and I, I think a part of my journey will always be, and I, I tell other workers this, I don't know that I'll ever have clarity. You know, I don't, I'm, I, however many years later we are, um, 10, 10, 11 years now, I don't know that I'll ever have clarity on if I should have done something different in that moment or uh, what all was stirring up. But I just know that it was what it was. And and God has um, beautifully, um, you know, made himself known through all of that and um, glorified himself in it. But that became a critical part of my journey of alongside the suffering I was going through overseas, my family was in tremendous suffering and grief and loss as my grandfather steadily declined from cancer and ended up passing away mm. while I was on the field. So so you ultimately decided to board that plane. And mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about the work that you went to do or, yeah. um, you know, and the and the people and how you saw God moving, you know, as you lead into what before too long became suspicion around your being there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We, when we went overseas, we were um, going to a location in East Africa and it's a, it's a heavily Islamic uh, community. And we went with an NGO and we were a mixed uh, group of workers to do medical work and education. And uh, initially, we're going to be there to to learn the language and really had a heart for incarnational work, right? That we want to we want to live among these people. We want to adopt their, their rhythms of life. And uh, we want them to be friends and family to us. And we want to learn how they cook and cook the foods they cook and learn their language. And uh, just wanted to really as much as we can, you know, adopt their, their culture and see them, just see them and say, we, we just see you. We see, we see what, um, this place is and this people is. And, and then from that our like I said, we had the intention of doing medical work, education, things like that, but also recognizing we don't fully know what's helpful in this place. We don't fully know if that's something that they actually need or if it's, if it's helpful to come in with an English class. Or, so really our heart was to go in with that plan, but also recognize once we get there and kind of learn the community and learn what uh, some of their more felt needs are, that hopefully we can be responsive to that based on our skill set. So Eventually, I did have the intention, like I said, of, of 
doing some sort of English training and classes, particularly for the women in our community who had maybe left school early. There was a strong tourist presence where we were. And so we, we had heard that many of the women can um, get jobs if they are able to speak English with the tourists. And so that was kind of part of my heart was um, to be able to go in and help them, you know, flourish financially <laughs> by being able to have a job if they could interact with some of the tourists who come. So that was our original, um, excuse me, our original uh, plan in as we headed in, and then a lot turned around really quickly <laughs> when we got there. It didn't take long for our best laid plans to um, all be obliterated. <laughs> right. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, there was there was a lot happening in the world at that time. Yeah, there was a strong uh, terrorist presence in East Africa. There still is. And um, so shortly after we arrived, many may remember that Nairobi, one of the malls in Nairobi was overtaken and bombed, attacked. We were yeah. still to this day, I don't think totally sure what all went on, but the, the mall was overtaken by a terrorist organization in the area. And that led to a lot of suspicion, understandably, in the whole region um, as they were trying to, as law enforcement was rightly trying to figure out who belonged to who and you know who could be trusted. And so we had come in as outsiders who adopted local dress as well and so we were wearing hijab in our community we were covering our heads very much out of just respect we had talked to a lot of the local people who had said hey for our safety and yours it's actually best if you'll just dress like us and uh, that's what they felt was most honoring they were very aware that we were christians that we were followers of jesus and all of them and i know that's not true everywhere but for our people they said hey we we would love if you guys as followers of jesus would cover your head and mm-hmm. um you know dress like us and so we did that said that created a lot of suspicion among non-muslim people in the region who were very at the time on edge understandably about outsiders who dressed the way that muslims dressed and so after the attacks there was a specific there was a specific woman that was being searched for as they thought she had uh you know masterminded these attacks and she was a white british woman mm-hmm. um called the white widow who uh w- had converted to islam and was living in the region and working for the terrorist organization at the time and so as they were hunting for her, <laughs> we were there with white faces and covered heads. Um, mm. And I just happened to have fair skin and, and dark hair, <laughs> dark eyebrows like she did. So very quickly, we were after the attacks in Nairobi. We initially, um, there was a day where we were a co-worker of mine and I were at a restaurant and we were kind of a group of law enforcement officials came into the restaurant and surrounded us and questioned us there at the restaurant, took us back to our house and wanted to see our documentation and things like that. And uh, so that was kind of a few hours in one day and that just, and that ended that day, but it, Mm -hmm. I would say was a significant shift for us of this reality that things in this region have changed and we are now the subject of suspicion where before going in people of course were naturally kind of like oh who are these people what's going on but there was a different level of 
we were actually fearful to many people and understandably so. Well, I can imagine the work that you were doing then, you know, becomes even challenging to do at that point. And, and so how long after that first initial visit at that restaurant, you know, did you realize, oh, this isn't something that's just going to die down. This is something that is actually not going away. Yeah. So that visit at the restaurant, I think was the mall attacks were in September. Um, I think the restaurant incident was in October. We kind of lived with a bit of, you know, just kind of that simmering unsteadiness. And, and as a, again, we had just gotten there at that point, like four months earlier. So there you, you feel these things intuitively and you're not, you know, it's like, is it just cause I'm new here? Is it just mm, cause I don't know the yeah. language? Is it because there's actual danger or suspicion or are people actually looking at me sideways? I don't know. Right. So those, just those months of, of longing to, to be, you know, kind of with this community, also not wanting, this was an interesting tension for me of going in thinking that I was going to be the fearful one and never having considered that I could bring fear to these people, the the very opposite thing of what I wanted to do. And in fact, I'm stirring fear for some people and I'm not sure who I can, I can see that I am. Um, there were other people who felt totally at peace with us the whole time. They advocated for us. They're like, you're with us. You're, you know, um, just stayed very near to us, but others where I could see that I was creating fear and, and again, understandably so. And so there's just a lot of tension in those days. And so the restaurant incident happened, I think in October, I might be getting that wrong but it was around that time. And then from October to Christmas, my grandfather's health health was steadily declining. I had agreed and to basically stay in our location for two years before I went back to the States. And as his health was declining, I had this again, tension of I've said, I'll stay for two years and I can be pretty, um, like if I say I'm going to do it, that's what I'm going to do. And I just hold to it. And I'm, it's hard for me to waver. And mercifully I had coworkers who said, Hey, like, let's, let's examine this here. You know, there's this situation your family's going through. And so his health was declining by December. It was pretty clear that he probably was not going to, to be healed from this cancer. And so my coworkers asked me to consider if you were to go home once in the next two years, would you prefer to go home and say goodbye to him while he's still on this earth? Or would you rather wait and go home for his funeral? And so I had to make this gut wrenching decision. Right. And it's, you know, it's hard for me to even say out loud because even all these years later, it's still like this, like how on earth <laughs> is that the decision I'm making or even putting words to it. And then having to have that phone call with my family where we're kind of acknowledging a reality that is so painful and that we want to stay so distant from, but we have to confront it and asking them to contribute to that decision as well. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately we decided all of us that I'd rather see him again on this earth and wanted to be a part of, yeah, yeah. I wanted to be a part of, I had missed his entire journey of illness. And so 
And again, when we first move overseas, obviously there's just so much information we're absorbing and taking in. And so you just so kind of detach from so much, you know, and I, so I lost so many days of even really knowing what was going on with my family and with him. I, I was just detached, right? Time zone is one thing, but then there's this whole just kind of emotional, can't really take in all the things from both worlds. And additionally, my own fears and things that were going on and not wanting to put that on my family. So there was just a bit of a disconnect there. So I did, I wanted to go see him while he was still here, but also just kind of see you know, the process that my family was living in. My grandmother was taking care of him just constantly every day. My mom was doing everything she could. My stepdad was helping. Um, and so I wanted to be with him in that process. So I ended up deciding to leave in March that I would go back to the States for a couple of weeks at the end of March. And that was, you know, just a, an incredibly <laughs> complex trip. You know, there's no... I. I can't tie a pretty bow on it. It's just painful. It's just painful. It's painful to, you know, to have left in the spot where we were at and, and come back here and, and encounter all of those realities. And, and he was so sick by that time. Um, and so to see him again on earth, which I am so glad I did, but it was, it was not the grandpa I had grown up with. He was so sick. Right. And so, um, and then to say, I'm leaving again. You know, and that's something I still feel um, the weight of that conversation of, of I know I know you're about to leave this earth, and I'm I'm going to go ahead and go back. Um, and he was, um, you know, to my knowledge, to my memory, he was supportive of that, but it wasn't without pain, uh, you know, and sadness on everybody's part, right? So was here for two weeks, and then went back overseas and upon entering the country when I went back is when I was actually held for the first time at um, the Nairobi airport. So when I was taken into custody by immigration officials who were questioning my identity upon re-entry. So had just said this very difficult goodbye to my family and my grandfather was completely jet lagged, (laughs) um, a wreck and have, you know, heavy, heavy suitcases with me that are now getting searched and all kinds of things. So I was really in a complete um, fog as I, as I re-entered the country and was taken into custody for the first time. And that's where um, it started this journey of um, being held and arrested and um, having my identity questioned. That was the, the kind of foundation of where that happened. So in this time, I can imagine you're feeling very alone. I mean, you mm-hmm. haven't even been in the country a year yet. No, no. Your relationships are founded on this instability. You've entered a country mm-hmm. bringing fear and there is fear. And and you, you mentioned that there are certain people in the midst of all of that that have still chosen to, you know, to befriend you, to stick with you. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, what was that like to, to be arrested and to, to have those feelings and to, to look up and, and, you know, where was God in all of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, you know, 
kind of what we talked about at the front end of all of this. There are these things that we are prepared for, so to speak, like we're, we're told to be prepared for. I don't know that we can ever actually prepare. <laughs> um, but this didn't fit any of the categories that I had been told about. Um, I had been prepared, you know, for my witness as a Jesus follower to come into question. I had been prepared for, um, if I, you know, share with someone, you know, the love that I've received from Jesus, that that would be seen as threatening and pushed against in whatever, you know, various ways that can happen. I was not prepared to be arrested on suspicion of terrorism. And that was so confusing. (laughs) It was so confusing because it introduces this question of, oh my gosh, am I just doing way more harm than good here? Um, Am I introducing something to this community that I never, ever would have wanted to? I believe, and I can look back on all my journals (laughs) and my prayers and see that God called me here. And yet that gets really quickly shaken in the face of things like this starting to go what feels like going wrong. So we were, or I was taken in for questioning at an airport in Nairobi and held, kept from flying onto my uh, destination. What I will say in reflection, I don't think, I don't remember that I felt this in the moment, but in reflection, I can look back and see that in that questioning and in, in that being held, there was a a part of me that came up that I can only attribute to the spirit of clarity of mind, um, in answering questions, just an ability to notice what's being asked to answer truthfully what's being asked um and to also ask questions because again i'm i'm being interrogated across cultures <laughs> so recognizing that the questions being asked and how they come out from somebody's second or third language i might not be accurately interpreting what they're asking and or what information they're seeking. And so had this clarity of mind that was absolutely not of myself or of my training, I again I can only attribute it to the Spirit of God that was able to say, hey, this is what it sounds like you're asking, but am I misunderstanding? Because in those moments it is critical to again answer what they're asking, but also not needlessly give other information that's going to muddy anything up. And so, you know, really in that, like truly can look (laughs) at this point in my life, can look back on the the scriptures where Jesus says, don't worry when you get dragged in front of authorities. Like in that moment, the spirit of God will give you the words that you need to say. And I can, I stand on that. I believe it. It's a truth that has continued to guide me, not even in those kinds of scenarios, but even even today, it's still something I stand on of how often we get wrapped up in what am I going to say? What am I going to do? What am I going to feel? And saying, I don't know right now, but I, I trust that in the moment, if I lean into the spirit. And again, just to be clear, I didn't make like an active 
conscious decision of leaning into the spirit in that moment, I was just absolutely terrified. <laughs> but the spirit took over um, because where I wanted to absolutely freeze or flee, that there was a spirit that gave me words at all, kept me present in the room, um, kept me able to kind of, when I had moments where I could text coworkers and let them know what's going on and things like that, just gave me a clarity of how to keep functioning when every part of my nervous system wanted me to take off (laughs) or just shut down entirely. You told a story to me one time about how you really saw the Lord through one of your friends who wasn't even a believer, a local friend. And I believe he mm-hmm. was wearing a t-shirt, if I remember that correctly. Yes. Do you remember what story I'm ta- ta- talking about? Absolutely. I'll never forget it. What yeah. was that story? Yeah. we. So after I was held um, at the main airport, I was eventually, after a number of hours of interrogation there, I was sent on to go to my location. And at the time I had friends who were living in, um, in Nairobi. And I said, Hey, actually I would, when, when the interrogation at that, in that spot was over, I said, Hey, I'd love to just actually stay in Nairobi for a couple of nights. I just, I didn't, I didn't want to move. Um, and, and I'll just stay here with some friends and, and whatever. And there was, Part of it was just the immigration process I was going through was waiting on work visas and all that stuff. And we had absolutely followed all the the laws of the land. And But just in needing documentation I didn't have yet, I said, hey, I'll just stay in the city until I get that documentation. And, you know, then I can go freely with my identity cleared and not worry about, you know, all that. But the, the local law enforcement in Nairobi said, no, you are getting on a plane. You are getting, we're going, going to go to where you're headed. And so I was actually kind of escorted to the plane, followed onto the plane. They made sure I was seated and then sent me on to my town. And when I got to my town, uh, was greeted at the airport by a host of <laughs> law enforcement officials. I'm not even sure what all categories they're from. I know they were immigration officials, police officers, um, I think higher level officials from the, the country. And so I don't know how that all came to be. And my best guess is that part of them sending me on was to kind of prepare this team to get there and, and to receive me when I was there. So obviously just tremendous fear as the plane lands and I walk up to the airport and what they were doing was checking everybody's names as they walked into the airport, which they had never done before. And as soon as I said my name, this whole kind of, again, host of law enforcement officials emerge, or that's how my brain remembers what happened. So I was at that point, I was taken into custody officially and taken over to the police station. And so I had many, many hours in the police station of being interrogated in our community. At that time, I had, like I said, we'd been in in the community for about eight months. And so we had formed really precious, deep friendships with our neighbors and the people living in the the homes closest to us. We'd also stayed with with some local families and so in some other neighborhoods. And so had really gotten even amidst kind of having, you know, some, some people who were suspicious of us, there were a lot of people who, like I said, just completely took us in and embraced us and loved on us so well. So when I was at the police station being questioned, I had some of my coworkers found out that I had been taken in. And so they came to the uh, police station 
with me or met me there. And they were letting other people know what was going on. So they were letting other people in my neighborhood know what was going on as well. There was a man who lived next door to us and uh, I'll never forget him. He had pretty quickly, because I was living with one of my coworkers who was also a single woman. So there were two of us single women living in a house together, which is very foreign in that community, obviously. And so we needed, you know, kind of the protection covering of a male. So he lived next door and he had kind of always been kind of our advocate. Like we, we just kind of fell under his authority and, and he had assured us that, you know, we could reach out to him for anything we needed. And so he shows up at the police station pretty quickly after I got there. And again, I am beyond exhausted, jet lagged, grieving, confused, (laughs) absolutely confused of what's going on when I was taken in. I wasn't even told why I was being taken in or what I was being charged with. So there was just a lot of, I don't even know why I'm here. And so I'm just answering these questions, but I'm not sure for to what end. And so have just absolutely no idea what's going to happen. And so he walks up to the police station and he comes in and just the, the sight of his you know, his presence, just, I immediately felt safer, um, having a man there who I knew and who had loved us so well. And he is a Muslim man. And when he came into the police station, he had on a t-shirt, uh, from the YMCA. (laughs) So I'm not sure where he got it, but across the front of the t-shirt, all it said beside the YMCA logo was Joshua one (laughs) nine. So he walked this message into the police station, which was a verse I had memorized for other reasons earlier in life and just reminded in that moment, God's words directly to me on this Muslim man's t-shirt of do not fear, do not be discouraged. I'm with you wherever you go. Right. And so such this gift. And I would say I I point to that as in in the same way, kind of. there's these moments in my story where it's like, I get these kind of final words, right? Like I I call my mom and she gives me these words and they're, this is the thing I want you to hold on to. Even if you can't talk to me, even if you can't see me, whatever, I need you to believe this. And I would say that that Joshua one nine where it was one of the last times this, this whole thing will becomes a 10 month trial. And it becomes one of the last times I get such clear, um, instruction or um, comfort from God himself mm-hmm. before it felt like he went really quiet. But that I am with you wherever you go was was one of the last things that I clearly had from him to hold on to. And it came again um, from a Muslim man who I will also say, um, when people ask me where I saw God in this whole thing, it was in my neighbors. It was in my friends and neighbors who just consistently through the whole ordeal, so many of them spoke truth that they didn't even know was Jesus truth, you know, but God's kind of the, the, the love and compassion that they had for us is, you know, comes out of their mouth at different times. And the ways that they served us in providing dinner for us when we'd been at court for a day or, um, you know, breakfast for me the next morning after I had, you know, been in the police office throughout the night. And, you know, like I said, that man coming to advocate for us who ultimately, uh, what I've learned, what I've heard, and I don't know all the details of this, but put his own life on the line when they wanted 
law enforcement wanted to keep me in a jail cell that night. And there was a lot of back and forth about letting me go home to sleep. And then I could come back to the police station in the morning and not putting me in jail. And I've learned that or what I was told was that that man, uh, my neighbor, basically put his own life and reputation on the line by signing something that said, if she doesn't come, let her go home and sleep. If she doesn't come back in the morning or if she flees in the night, I'll do her jail time. And I, that was a demonstration of the gospel to me that I don't think I'll ever have again in this life. And it came through my Muslim neighbor. And that was you know, again, these aren't things I'm thinking clearly in the moment at all, but in reflection and the way I look back on the story now is that this whole thing becomes a bit of a journey for me to understand the gospel and the nature of the gospel and for God to say, do you understand this thing that you are telling others about? Do you understand the goodness of it and the richness of it and, and ultimately what Christ has done? and what he saved you from. And Jen, I think I think about that story because do you understand that I can show you who I am through anybody? Yes. And I yes. am everywhere. You're not bringing me somewhere that I am not already and I can use anybody in anything. And honestly, it gives me hope for so many areas of my life when mm. I'm asking are you present there already? Mm -hmm. You know. You mentioned that that was the last time you felt like you heard God and mm. that this was a long process. And and this month at Velvet Ashes, our theme is wilderness. And, and mm. I just wonder if we could just spend a couple of minutes talking about that wilderness season that you, this entered into for you and what it was like to to feel like you you were alone in this yeah. and that, that he wasn't answering you and you felt like he wasn't there. Yeah, that... Um... You know, I, I have, I know we've gone a little, the chronology of the story might be a bit confusing from how I've shared it, but so I have that night where I get back to my town and I'm taken into custody. I go, I go home to sleep that night. And then we spend the next week kind of in and out of offices to be interrogated by different officials. Initially I was being charged with a suspicion of terrorism um, or terrorist activity that got cleared pretty quickly. And then our charges turned um, after something during the interrogations, after it, um, you know, became evident that we are Jesus followers and, you know, kind of our hearts to be there, that there were a few men, a very small group of them who really resisted that and wanted us out of the community. And so charged us with, false immigration crimes, basically just fabricated and fabricated immigration crimes and crimes. So we spend a week in interrogations where they're figuring all that out. And then by the end of the week is when we're officially charged with these immigration crimes taken to court for the day. And then we go to jail for the first time. And that night when I go to jail, call my mom, they take the phones, they're bringing out the clothes for us. So we were there for a few hours as we were getting booked in we were miraculously released um, by a lawyer who had seen what was happening in court that day and came and paid our, our bail money for us that night. And that's not everybody's story, you know, I, and so I, I just want to honor <laughs> that many have similar stories and walk similar paths and they don't have that release. Right. And so, you know, a lot of times people 
say I was imprisoned, you know, and I was, but I was there for a few hours. I was, I ended up being released that evening. So I never spent the night in jail, um, through all this kind of going and coming and, you know, going into various offices and things. I never spent the night in jail, but that night after we left the jail and go back, it's like two hour journey back to where we lived. Things get real fuzzy for me in my memory about kind of all the what happened after that there were like i said we ended up being on trial for 10 months we went to court 13 times in that 10 months but the overarching memories that i have in that 10 months is actually that there were multiple terrorist attacks in the areas that surrounded us uh we ended up having to be evacuated from our area because of those attacks so then we're starting to like commute back into our town to show up for court and then leaving again so complete instability of where we're living um and so all these people in my town who were who were loving us well and advocating for us became really my source of security and so then we had to leave them and i go somewhere that i i don't know anybody and i'm totally scared and so have that instability going on and my grandfather passes away and I'm, um, this was, he passed away the day before, uh, we had a, a massive attack in the town next to us. And then we get evacuated a few days later. So right after my grandfather dies, um, is when we, our whole lives turn upside down again and we move and I go to a city that I'm not super familiar with and living by myself in that city for three months just really by myself in a, in a guest house. So I was caught in all this grief, just this constant uncertainty of this trial, which if it ends with our conviction, we were going to be in jail for 10 years and nobody who can help, you know, you, there's this, this real ingrained thing. I think the the justice side of us, that says like, this isn't true. Like these are charges aren't true. There's no way I'm going to end up having to, to have consequences from it. Cause it's not true. So there's this thing that naturally pulls toward that. And then the feedback that you're getting is even from, you know, the embassy and stuff is you have to see this trial through. And if they convict you of it, you will have to go to jail and do the time. And so this complete disorienting confusion of, but I didn't do it. I, did, I didn't do the thing they're charging me of. And I can't necessarily trust that the justice system is going to come to that conclusion. And so having to kind of open myself to the possibility that in the midst of everything else going on, this might all end with a uh, jail time, a jail sentence. And all of that, you know, it's like, even as I'm saying it now, it just is like this complete you know, it's like the vision I get of like, I'm just standing and there's this vast unending cloud above me that keeps me from God's presence, from sensing him. So I was just in this total fog where, you know, understanding now better the nature of, of trauma and what it does, where just in total survival mode of needing to just eat every day, needing to sleep every day, not really being able to absorb new information, mm -hmm. um, not really being able to process things that are happening around me, much less kind of the unseen things of God. <laughs> and 
in the midst of that feeling this sense of is God just really cruel because I I could actually make some sense of what was going on with the trial through the lens of persecution or through the lens of suffering to feel like God took my my greatest source of earthly security and stability which was my grandfather in the midst of that that was the part that for years I said could have done without that <laughs> was it not and was that was that not enough I never went through a phase where I was like well, I, I and and not in any sense of what's right or wrong but just for me personally I never went through the questions of like why me why is this happening I've actually felt like okay I actually kind of expected this to happen or it, it makes sense to me that this part is happening but that additional um loss and not only loss for me but loss for my family and the pain of what they're going through at the same time I have this very unpredictable reality that is is just compounding their sense of grief and fear and that that's where I started to enter a a realm that was pretty scary for me where I felt like my job was only to sacrifice for God and I was just a pawn in some sort of big grand plan that he had and that I my I was you know, these are the things going on in my head at the time. Right, right. Expendable in that. And so I didn't stop believing in him. I think I, I don't, I don't remember ever having a day where I didn't believe in him, but I very much got to a point of what I would now define as apathy, which apathy is, is past the point of fear. It's past the point of anger. It's past the point of confusion. It's very scary. And <laughs> apathy where I remember that actually being um, the scariest place for me in the sense of, I don't care anymore. God, do what you're going to do. I don't care. Like I'm just here. I can't move. I'm trapped. And that's what like kind of a psychological trapping will do is, is get to get you to that place where you have no, you no longer feel any sense of dignity or initiative. And you just kind of best you can do in the morning is wake up and, I remember one of the things that was so painful that one of the promises for me that's always been the sweetest is that God's mercies are new every morning. And I, to this day, it's still one of my sweetest things that I remind myself of. And, and yet I went through a spell where when I would wake up, the most sacred part of my day was the few fractions of a second before reality sunk in you know when you're just starting to wake up and you just have there's there's just I don't even think it's a full second sometimes but you have this this moment of it's a new day and and your body's waking up and your mind's waking up and your heart's waking up and I wouldn't get a full second into that before reality sunk in and I just and and the thought of a day ahead felt so heavy and hard and painful to get through. And so that promise of God's mercies being new every morning felt gone. Waking up was actually harder than going to sleep. Going to sleep was easier, right? That a lot of times when people go through really hard things, they'll say like they fear going to bed or, you know, falling asleep or it's hard to fall asleep, things like that. I was different. I going to sleep was not the problem it was waking up because now I have to go through a whole other day of, I don't know what's going to happen in this day. Yeah. 
And I, I start orienting myself of God's only going to take from me. And so what are we going to lose today? Or, and so that is where I would start. I started to say, you know, there was a, a day where I was on trial, where we were in the courtroom and I started having a full on panic attack. I now know that that's what it was. I didn't at the time. And um, I remember asking God, I desperately need you to calm my body down right now because we had been told in, in the courtroom that we couldn't have any show of emotion because it was kind of a sure sign of guilt. And so they had said, you've got to keep it together. You can't cry. You can't be emotional. Like you just got to answer the questions. And so I'd been able to do that pretty well. And then all of a sudden there's this day where I'm, my body's just shaking violently and tears are streaming down my eyes. And I say, God, if I ever needed you to clearly do anything, I need you to calm my body down right now. And it just felt so silent. And I continued to shake. And that that was really a that I would say that was the point where I moved into this sense of apathy. Like if I can't count on you, <laughs> I'm not even asking you to get me off trial. I'm just asking you to calm my body down because you're my creator and I know you could. And I didn't that prayer was not responded to. And that was a a moment where I shifted into, okay, I don't care anymore. I'm not asking anymore because you're going to do what you want anyway. That led into, again, what I now know is a dark night of the soul as I journeyed through those months. And you journeyed through those months as a cross-cultural worker. And I think so mm -hmm. many women that listen to this think I'm not allowed to be there as someone yeah. like that. Yes. I, I'm the person who's not supposed to experience that. And yet you're saying yeah. that sometimes that's not, that, that just happens. And yeah. no matter what you're calling your profession, you sometimes just go through those moments. And that's mm -hmm. part of being in relationship with God. It's part of our journey. It's part of the path that we walk sometimes with him, it's part of what shapes our relationship. And so as you walked that, eventually you walked through a place where you walked out of that. Mm -hmm. What was that like? When did that happen for you? Well, I want to, if I can speak real quickly into what you just shared that mm -hmm. yes, yes. And yes. Right. That as cross-cultural workers, if what, what I didn't understand before I went overseas is if what I am called to do is to not only speak, but demonstrate the power of the gospel, <laughs> then my life in front of these people will have to demonstrate the power of the gospel. And the power of the gospel is that contrary to what my local friends believed, I get to wrestle with the Father. I get to be sad. I get to be scared. And I have to learn who God is. I have to learn who Jesus is when I am just relentlessly in doubt. I have to learn who Jesus is when I'm terribly afraid, when my future is unknown. And, and part of that incarnational work, right, that I think a lot of times we talk about the necessity. I'm, I'm um, a big advocate for the necessity of, of having a right theology of suffering, but a right theology of suffering has to incorporate a right theology of the incarnation. What does it mean that Christ became human and that he dignifies my humanity? It means that in those moments of tremendous fear and doubt and separation from the Father or or perceived separation from the Father, I get to learn who Jesus is in that and to trust that that's part of what I'm called to show 
these people. And gosh, that's humbling. <laughs> I, that's not, that's not the, that's not what I want to show. That's not what I want to be a demonstration of. But what if that's the very thing he's asking of me, because I'm going to people who do fear and who do have doubts and who do cry at night and they just can't say it. <laughs> and so what if I get to do that too, but I'm allowed to say it because I'm so secure in the father's love and I'm secure yeah. in what Christ has done. And so that's all stuff on reflection. That's not stuff I was aware of in the midst of it, but I saw it. I saw it later. I saw it when I heard on the other side, how people were observing us and observed me and watched us walk through this, this suffering. That's not to say I was completely vulnerable in an open book with everybody about everything I was feeling by any means. You know, so much of this is contained to my journal. So much of it, I was still a cross-cultural worker who was afraid to be completely candid about the the ache and the fears and the doubts. And And another component of this is that for security reasons at the time, we were not allowed to tell most people what was going on. So I'm still sending um, newsletters back home <laughs> that are not letting people know this is happening, which, you know, again, is was a part of that dissonance of, oh my gosh, I'm kind of living two lives here. And I, I long to tell people what's going on, but for security reasons and for the safety of our local friends and things like that, I can't right now. And so you know, there's a lot of, there was a lot of undoing of the impact of things like that on the other side. But in January of 2015, I was still on trial. We were still on trial. We were coming up on a time when it was getting to the place in our trial where they were saying, we're going to have to put you on the witness stand. Uh, up until that point, they had called in our local friends and had them be on the witness stand, which again, is just this profound, like, their willingness to sacrifice their reputation or potentially their lives to to advocate for us and to speak on our behalf in court was was stunning and but it was getting to the point where it was I was gonna have to be questioned and so just feeling tremendous fear I, I was already wrestling with I was the first person arrested right and so my co-workers had kind of gotten pulled into this and so had already wrestled so much with if I hadn't gone back to America to see my grandfather if I had just waited until the funeral if I you know hadn't done such and such when I came back into the country maybe that's what it was all this stuff and now all my co-workers are are in it with me and so was wrestling with that so then the thought of getting up on a witness stand and having to be the voice um, and answer questions be trusted to answer those questions was absolutely terrifying. And I was so overwhelmed again by that point, but, but overwhelmed to the point of apathy where it's like, I, I'm just waking up in the morning. I'm, I'm eating food. I see my neighbors, you know, but, um, really pretty shut down and had the opportunity to go out to an actual area of wilderness to a cabin in the woods out in a different part of the country for about a week even while we were on trial. And so that was January. So we're still on trial. I'm about to have to go on the witness stand. I get to go out for a week and in by myself in solitude, intentional solitude. And at the beginning of that week, I just thought, I just need to unravel some of this. This is also, it's like this big knotted up ball of yarn. Like you pull one thing and you can't get anywhere because it's so knotted up with everything else. And so that was my kind of 
vision for the week of, I just need to unravel some of this. I need to unravel some of the grief. I need to untangle it from the court stuff and like all these other things. And in that week, I read through one of the gospels every single day. I just read it and read it and read it. Like I read front to back every single day, just read it over and just looked at Jesus and looked at who he is. And in that certain things began to stand out to me, certain interactions he had. And one of them that was so significant was when he asked Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? And I was so scared of that question because I sensed, I could sense this, like, uh, I feel like he's asking me that. And I, and there was a lot of resistance for me of, I'm not answering that question because the last time I told you what I needed you to do for me, you didn't. And so I, you, great, you asked him, but you're not asking me. And even if you are asking me, I don't want to answer. I'm scared to answer. And it became this week of that question coming over and over and over. What do you want me to do for you? And it started out, you know, kind of in my response to the spirit was kind of, you know, the, the instinct was, well, I just want to be out of this. Like, I want to be out of this mess. I don't want to be trapped any longer. And then this interaction with the spirit where it was, is that really what you want? Is that the thing you most want is just to be off trial and, and just this invitation to really explore what's really going on in your heart. And so I started softening a bit in that. And really what it came down to was, I just want to see my family again. I just want to be with my family again. I need to see them since my grandpa died. I need to, I need to hug them. Um, I need to have a conversation with them. And if that ends in, I still come back here and end up in jail for 10 years. Okay. But that's what I most wanted. That's that. And I, and I felt this, like there was, there was a bit of a, it's like, it was like taking a deep breath for a minute to say, that's what I really want. And to acknowledge that before Jesus say, I just want to see my family. And that didn't immediately happen, but that kind of softened me a bit where I got a little space of, I'm starting to believe again that God is, is listening and present. And this is after many months of apathy and coming to that place of, okay, I'm better with you. Father gave me just that little margin where I could start to interact again. And then a month later, all of our charges were dropped and we were off trial. And it's so sweet to me. It'll always be so sweet to me that he didn't, he didn't in that trial before he got me reconnected, um, that it wasn't dependent. My, my, my being back in relationship with him was not dependent on him ending this trial. It was being back in conversation first. And that wasn't, you know, I, I can say that as if it's kind of these like steps, it was nowhere near as clean of a process as what it sounds when you tell the story later, right? Like there's up and down, whatever. Um, and a, a few years later, when a lot of the actual impact of the trauma started to sink in because we got off trial February, 2015, actually stayed in the community for a few more months, uh, finished our two years. Like I said, when I say, well, I'm, I'm here for two years, I'm here for two years. So we finished the two years. We came back to the States or I came back to the States for a number of months. And then I went back in 2016 to the same house, same community, same everything. But going back actually, brought on kind of a new wave of just trauma symptoms and, and having to kind of walk through that journey again of having all this stuff kind of 
resurface that hadn't been healed well. And when I went through it again, it, you know, there, there's this moment that I still remember sitting in my room, my office in my house where it was again, just this kind of angst with Jesus and the father and ignoring the spirit within. And yet I could so clearly like see Peter with Jesus going, where else would I go? Like there's nowhere else to go that I've seen the world. I've seen what it offers. I've, I, I, there is nothing else to do but stay with him. And so having this tension with Jesus and still getting to that place of even if I left, even if I let it all go, then what do I go to? Mm-hmm. So that those were moments of, again, just kind of an invitation that opened up like, okay, Jesus, if, if you're all I've got <laughs> and if there is nowhere else to go, then here we go. Let's do this again. And let's, let's see where it takes me. And and I know there's more to learn about you and I know there's more to experience of you. And so, yeah, just these moments. But again, I want to just emphasize, this was like years. This wasn't (laughs) right. We're not talking about a week or a month. Um, and it's, it's not cut and dry and it's not clean. It's still not clean. And I know, so you, you didn't actually leave this field for several more years. You know, many mm-hmm. people would have gone through what you went through and that was it. And, and yeah. people would have never thought twice about that. You know, yeah. they would have said, of course you would have left, but you stayed and served in this community for several more years. And in fact, now, now you're not there anymore. You have come off the field. And in the few minutes that we have left, you know, I would love for people, for you to tell people kind of how did this time shape what you do today and what Mm. message would you give to people, to women who are still, you know, on the field? Yeah. Oh, such a big question. There's so much, there's so much that I just would love to encourage people with. Um, but what ended up happening, I, I was there seven years in total, or just shy of seven years. I ended up getting evacuated during the time of the pandemic. So after all of that, I had 72 hours to leave um, where I was and say goodbye to it. And, you know, so it was kind of like a journey that started in chaos and ended in chaos. And yet so much richness in the midst of that and learned so much of God's heart in the midst of that, not just for the people there that he loves, but for me as well. And, you know, again, like I said, it's not, it wasn't a clean process. And there are things that when I, when I left East Africa and I came back to the States in the midst of the pandemic, mercifully, I had a lot of margin and space and time um, to, to think through what's next and to pursue, you know, kind of what would God have me do next or invite me to next because no one was doing anything. <laughs> so there were no expectations. I had nothing but time to, to kind of sit with the father and reflect on my own, you know, journey, but also say, um, what's ahead because I don't believe it ends here. And, you know, I don't know how to explain the the sense of grace and mercy that I came out on the other side longing to be with him and to continue to to serve those who are in the nations. Because as you said, Denise, nobody would fault me or anybody else. If you say, okay, I got to be done with that life. I've got to close that chapter. I need to do something different in order to heal. Nobody would fault me or anybody else for that. But I, I can't explain it other than just 
the grace of God to me that I still longed afterwards to say, I know other people are going through this and I know other people are suffering and I never, ever want them to feel alone. And there were reasons that I felt very alone in the midst of all of that. Some of that was, you know, could have been remedied by, by human presence and not all of it could have, but I, I just had this passion for, I don't want, I don't want people to have to go through these things on their own if they don't have to. And so in that, as I, as I kind of pursued what was next and kind of sought counsel from people who've known me and walked with me for many years, decided to go get, um, my master's degree in marriage and family therapy and, um, now work for Barnabas International, uh, who provides member care to people all over the world, specifically those working in the hardest to reach, uh, places. And so I'm part of their clinical care team as a therapist. Um, I'm still getting my, my license. So I want to say that an associate's license as a therapist with Barnabas, but now getting to walk through, um, you know, trauma and crises with our global workers who are on the field and, and hopefully providing one, you have this, this kind of spiritual experience in all of this, you know, and so there, that needs, soul care, but you also, but these things also there, there's a very real thing called trauma (laughs) and how it impacts the mind and it's functioning and the body and it's functioning and how that all interacts with the spirit is critical. And so just wanting to dignify and honor that part of people's journeys and experiences and be with them in that Mm -hmm. to hopefully provide, you know, beyond the, all I can do today is eat, drink, sleep, take a shower, right? Right. Um, can we, can we provide you with, with help and care and presence that allows you to, to do more than that and to do more than just like, you know, bear down and endure until it's over, but to have a little bit more sense of agency and flourishing and, Also a big part of my, my journey, part of the marriage and family therapy component is again, seeing that my suffering had a ripple effect on the people around me who I adore. And, and that part of my healing has been learning to forgive myself for areas where I was holding on to a lot of my own judgment against myself for how things I did, I perceived really harmed other people. And so one of the things that got missed in my suffering, I think, was who takes care of all these other people that got wounded, that got hit by the shrapnel? Or do I end up doing that because I feel responsible for it? And so part of that for me is, can we also provide care um, to those around our global workers who are suffering? So my encouragement in all of this (laughs) Man, there's just, like I said, there's just so much. And it's hard to know where to start without knowing individual stories. But um, to reach out, to raise your hand, that you don't have to do this alone. Um, There are others who have gone through these things on the field. I think that has hindered a lot of people getting care. They feel like I can't find anybody who's, you know, maybe there's, there's counseling out there, but counselors who haven't been on the field. And so I don't know who to talk to because I need somebody who understands. Um, there are many, uh, counselors within Barnabas, but also in many other organizations who are excellent, um, clinicians who have been on the field and have lived some of these realities. There are people who have suffered and walk through to the other side of that or been walked through by Jesus to the other side of it. Right. And so my encouragement, I, 
I say, you know, I, I was in a situation where it's like, I don't know if this ever ends. I don't know if I'm in jail for the rest of my life, but holding on to, um, the truth, it will end. There is an eternal assurance (laughs) that whatever you're going through, it will not last forever. And I think that's something I often remind people because we start to believe like that's that thing of when I wake up in the morning and I have this day ahead of me that I can barely get through, like this is forever. It's not more than likely the earthly circumstances will end or shift or change somehow. But even if they don't, um, you have this merciful promise that this is not forever. And so finding somebody who can be with you in the midst of it until it shifts or changes or even then beyond that, if you need continued care, but yeah, to really reach out and, and say, Hey, I'm, I'm struggling. And here's the honest reality of the thoughts in my head and the emotions I'm feeling and the reactions in my body. And to believe and trust that there are lots of us within this faith family who want to receive that and um, want to care for you through it, not just correct it, but just be with you in it, you know, as, as the father works out what he's doing in your life. Absolutely. Jen, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to share your story. And, Mm. and um, I think this one is, is a longer story than we normally share, but I, I think it's important because to sit in every moment with you ministers to people who are sitting in these moments and Mm. they need to hear these moments. And I just want to encourage you that there are so many ways that you can get connected to people, whether that's through Barnabas International, whether that's through counselors, like places at Vallejo, whether that's through even something as simple as connection groups through Velvet Ashes, where you sit with other women who are on the field, who are going through things, um, please don't hesitate to reach out. If you find yourself needing to walk through areas of your life with somebody, we want to be sure that you get that care. You can look for links to places like Barnabas and Vallejo in our show notes. We definitely want to be a resource for you in our community for that. We're so thankful to Barnabas International for sponsoring this podcast. Barnabas is a member care organization that shepherds global workers and trains global shepherds. For more information about how Barnabas International might serve you or to find out more information, you can go to Barnabas.org or the link in our show notes. Thanks everybody for joining us on the Velvet Ashes Legacy Podcast. Whoa.